Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're taking a look at the prospects for emerging markets, and to give insights into this area of the investment world, I'm joined by Carlos Hardenberg, Fund Manager of the Mobius Investment Trust. In the interview, I'll be asking Carlos to explain why he is bearish on China, but much more positive on Taiwan, India, and South Korea. I'll also be asking about technology shares in the emerging markets, as that is a major part of the investment trust. But I started off by asking Carlos to give a brief summary of his outlook for emerging markets in 2024. I asked Carlos to name one reason to be bullish and one reason to be bearish about prospects for the year ahead. I wish I could give you more than one reason because I have many reasons why to be bullish. But um, in general, the situation, when you look uh, from sort of a the distance at the markets uh, from a top-down view, you'll realize that number one, valuations in emerging markets are at a multi-decade low. So you're getting um, quality assets at a very, very attractive price. Number two, macroeconomic conditions look far more benign and positive than they used to over the last couple of years. Uh, so there's been deleveraging, the consumer health is improving, also public finances look quite robust, no matter where you look. And then, of course, what plays a huge role and, and why I'm quite optimistic is that inflation numbers look far better. So inflation is coming down. Interest rates are coming down in emerging markets. And that has, of course, a trickle on effect on, on consumption and on the investment cycle in the private sector. In terms of being bearish, I think we shouldn't uh, we should never forget that in this environment, interest rates in the U.S. play a significant role in terms of allocating assets to more riskier areas. As long as rates in the U.S. stay high, I think that's going to be a burden for recovery in emerging markets. And then, of course, China. China has caused a lot of disappointments over the last couple of years. And I think the view on China has changed dramatically. So if China continues to underperform, it will also act as a sort of a, a burden for a, a broader recovery. Now, emerging markets, they have plenty of attractions. They have much more favorable demographics than developed markets. There's growing middle classes and they have much younger populations. However, it's very important with emerging markets to take a long-term view, such as 10 years. However, I was interested to see figures from the Association of Investment Companies that showed that on average, investors would be better off picking a global investment trust over a global emerging markets investment trust. Why do you think it is that a global portfolio has outperformed emerging markets over the past decades? And going forward, do you think that will change? You are absolutely right in your description. However, it is uh, slightly dangerous to generalize. So basically what you're saying is you're, you're just comparing the average fund to the average fund and mo most of these funds are actually very close to the benchmark. Um, so that means you exclude uh, a huge number of companies and opportunities in emerging markets uh, and in developed markets as well. So I think that lesson which you just described is a good reminder of why active investing is important, something which should not be ignored. And a lot of active investors over that period have actually generated significant outperformance against the average fund manager or the benchmark by investing very differently. 
And if you then uh, dig a little bit further and look at the composition of these benchmarks or the average funds, there's a huge tendency to buy large companies, to buy, and then they typically buy businesses like banks, uh, commodity businesses, conglomerates, and sort of the blue chips. And the blue chips in the last 10 years certainly had difficulties. They became more mature. They couldn't grow as fast as they did in the past. And then in comparison, the US companies and some European companies, especially in the tech sector, they did phenomenally well. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you've seen many studies giving evidence that the vast majority of the growth that you and the outperformance, which you just, just described in developed markets, were actually driven by five or six companies. So, you know, Facebook and the likes, um, as other tech names. Um, so I think active investing is important. Uh, and in that period, a lot of EM companies and countries have done phenomenally well. So our job is to find them. In terms of the country weightings in the investment trust that you manage, you have a very small amount of exposure to China, particularly when compared to the emerging market indices. What are the reasons behind not having much exposure to China? Why are you so bearish? So the beauty about the job and what uh, sort of keeps me very, very interested and excited is we can invest globally. We can invest in Latin America. We can invest across Africa. We can invest in different places in Asia. And nobody is forcing us to purchase Benchmark. China is give and take anywhere between 15 or 25% of the various benchmarks. We decided that our strategy is very focused on quality companies which are run by trustworthy, reputable management teams. Uh, to us, it's extremely important that we can trust the numbers, that we think there's you know, no fishy business involved and that the boards are populated by truly professional, independent directors and not just friends and family or some proxies of the government. So therefore, uh, when you look at these factors, Chinese companies don't meet those expectations. They are still largely behind in terms of governance and reputation to some degree, trustworthiness, which doesn't mean we, you know, we are writing off China. I think uh, anyone who says, you know, we no longer are interested in the Chinese market, that's a mistake. It's it's a, you know, one of the largest economies today on the planet with very interesting potential, but we prefer to play China via sort of Korea, via Taiwan, via other companies which sit out outside of China and are very good in managing the Chinese opportunity. And it's proven a good call over the past two years because China's stock market has not performed well. Is it a stock market that you're looking at a bit more closely now in terms of valuations following that two years of subdued performance? I do. It's it's a bit dangerous to just follow valuations, though. Uh, it clearly plays a role, and you are right. The Chinese market looks incredibly cheap right now. Question is whether it's looking cheap for the right reason, and whether there can be a prolonged and sustainable recovery of earnings uh, and corporate uh, success in China going forward. So we are looking at China. We are looking at China directly at a couple of opportunities, but predominantly we are trying to get exposure indirectly. So let's talk about your three biggest country weightings, which are to Taiwan, India, and South Korea. Could you briefly explain and run through the investment attractions of each of those? Okay, i try briefly. So India, I just came back from India two days ago, and we spent a lot of time in India. India is just um, a phenomenal place for bottom-up value quality investors because there's just so many opportunities. And you've got the perfect mix of 
a very talented entrepreneurial environment with infinite access to talent and hungry labor, coupled with a government, a Modi government, which is unlocking every potential in the country. They've, you know, went through various reforms, demonetization, tax reforms, trade reforms, and they are creating an environment that attracts a lot of foreign direct investment. So it's 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 in many ways the golden moment for India. Uh, China plus one is helping as well. So a lot of FDI directed to India. Apple is investing tens and tens of billions as an example in India. They recently ordered over 400 new planes. So it reflects the, you know, better infrastructure, strong domestic demand and a huge export opportunity. So the beauty is if you look more carefully, you also find among the 6,000 listed mid-cap names that there are plenty of opportunities that are not yet discovered. That's India. Briefly, South Korea is one of the markets which we think is one of the best place to get indirect exposure to China. Why do I say that? Chinese consumers love anything that's coming from Korea. They love the brand. They appreciate the products and services coming from Korea. They also love to travel to Korea. Uh, so we identified a number of names, especially in the medical industries, which are very successfully catering to Chinese consumers. And in Korea, there has also been a lot of reform done towards better governance, better transparency. So we get very tech-savvy, talented management teams and very good businesses, uh, which compete globally today. And then valuations in Korea are also still very reasonable. Last but not least, Taiwan. Obviously, the whole world has been looking at Taiwan over the last couple of days. Taiwan is the role model globally, the blueprint, if you will, of the best governance in Asia. It's the role model in transparency. It's the role model in creating competitive ecosystems of starting from kindergartens to preschools to secondary education, university education, constantly producing some of the best talents and researchers in the world. Uh, so that's their, their pool, which they can constantly recruit from and the private sector is benefiting from that. So whether it's technology, uh, global technology, I mean, that's known but also many other sectors where Taiwanese companies compete. And we are quite optimistic about Taiwan for the coming years. You've spoken about technology. That's a key theme for the investment trust. It accounts for around 60% of the portfolio. So could you talk us through how you invest in technology? Are there certain subsectors within that sector that you prefer to have exposure to? And could you name a couple of stock examples? Yes, I can. And it's again, it's quite differentiated. 60% might sound quite heavy, but if you actually take a more granular view at the 60%, the vast majority of our tech exposure is software. So we believe that software in emerging markets is highly attractive because the markets, consumers and corporates are underpenetrated. So the software content, software penetration is just not as high as it is in the West. A lot more localized software products which are needed and the whole shift towards cloud and digitalization plays a huge role. So that's one observation. The other observation is what we like about these domestic, local and regional software businesses is they provide access to recurring revenues and very sticky client relationships. Once you're a business or a consumer and you decide for a certain software product, you normally stick to it. And many of these businesses base their revenue model on software as a service. So these are subscription models and very stable. Um, so that's why we are very exposed to software in Latin America and Asia across all emerging markets. 
The second area is IC design. So just to describe this, we have not invested in asset-heavy, um, for example, chip foundries like TSMC or UMC. Instead, we invested in asset-light businesses. Uh, an example, we invested in a business which is one of the world's leading provider of encryption technology. So any product, including the microphone and the devices you're using here in the studio, they need some sort of a defense against external hackers and they need encryption. That is a design which is programmed onto the chips. And we found a business here which is providing that particular know-how as one of the few companies uh, of such quality in the world providing uh, that know-how and skill to all consumer electronic businesses around the world, including governments and private sector. It's called eMemory. Another good example of technology is we've invested in a really interesting business in a place which most people wouldn't really expect that type of business to be located. And we invested in one of the upcoming, very competitive developer of airline software in Turkey. Um, so everybody knows Amadeus, uh, the Amadeus system, which is used by airlines globally. Uh, but there's actually a competitor which has been increasingly successful, winning one airline after the next, um, offering software, uh, software which is used by the airlines to manage the entire fleet and resources, but then also another software which is used to distribute the tickets uh, to uh, end users to uh, end clients. So they are very successful in this. They recently won a couple of very large deals and they're chasing the, the larger ones by being more efficient, more cost competitive. This is another example. And then maybe a, a final example would be another company which is highly exciting, especially basically in Korea. And they do atomic force microscopy, which is a technology used to test semiconductors, um, especially the most sophisticated semiconductor chips, seven, five, and three nanometer size, so the smallest of the smallest chips. And that was developed by a highly uh, admirable PhD student in a US university who went to Korea and then developed this business model uh, and is now becoming very, very successful because uh, that is the only technology which is used to test these very small semiconductors. And finally, Carlos, I wanted to ask you, given that there's a lot of elections taking place this year, including in emerging markets, how do you approach things like an election coming up and how do you deal with potential political risk when investing in the emerging markets? That is probably one of the most important things when investing in emerging markets, which is also often underestimated, the political risk. I wouldn't necessarily say that an election per se is, is a risk. It depends where, it depends on the circumstances. But we are monitoring this very, very carefully and closely. We have um, avoided uh, some of the more risky countries. We are one of the few funds that had no investment in Russia uh, we are also continuing to be very skeptical about Argentina and other Southeast Asian countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, where we're very careful simply because of these uh, external risks or macro risks like political risks. So it's something which goes hand in hand with our stock picking. It's absolutely key. My thanks to Carlos and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it if you do get the chance, please leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app too, as this really does help get the podcast into more and more people's ears. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email. Get in touch on otm 
at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.